This is Cindy Burnett, and you are listening to the new Thoughts from a Page podcast. I love all things bookish. I run a bookstagram account called Thoughts from a Page. I write two book columns called Buzz Reads and Page Turners for a local Houston publication called The Buzz Magazines. And I co-operate a literary salon here in Houston called Conversations from a Page. We are currently on Zoom, so check us out at cfapage.net. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, Pulitzer Prize winner Eric Ayer is here to visit with me. I listened to his book, Death and Mudlick on a Road Trip, and I found it both gripping and absolutely heartbreaking. I believe it is a must-read because it exposes the true underpinnings of our country's opioid epidemic. Eric has been a reporter at the Charleston Gazette-Mail since 1998. In 2017, his investigation into massive shipments of opioids to West Virginia's southern coal fields was awarded a Pulitzer Prize. He lives in Charleston, West Virginia, with his wife and son. Now, let's get to it. I am very pleased to be interviewing Eric Ayer today, the author of Death and Mudlick, A Coal Country Fight Against the Drug Companies That Delivered the Opioid Epidemic. Thank you for agreeing to come on my podcast, Eric. How are you today? Oh, good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Why don't we start by talking about Death and Mudlick? Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you discovered the crisis and how the book came about? Well, it really boils down to it's about mostly about a crusading lawyer and a reporter, small town reporter. I worked as a very small paper and an ex-con who had a drug peddling past. And it was how we sort of banded together and uncovered how these giant drug corporations had ignited an epidemic by flooding small town America with billions of opioid painkillers. People that have read the book say the best way to describe it is part Aaron Brockovich and, and part Spotlight. Spotlight being the focus on the Boston Globe and newspapers and Brockovich, you know, the one woman taking on the big companies. And it basically, the book starts out in 2005 uh, with a woman named Debbie Priest, and she has a brother named Bull Priest who has an overdose, on, who overdoses and dies on OxyContin. And at, at the time, the, the opioid epidemic was surging Back in 2005, it's kind of right after Purdue Pharma made its big blitz for opioid sales. And her brother named Bull Priest was a coal miner. She made a vow to herself after he died. And he died in a place called Mudlick, which is the title of the book. It's a hollow, probably about 30 people. I've only been there once, but it's really in, in the backwoods, far away from any, you have to go down dirt roads, et cetera, to get there. But so she decides that her brother's not going to become another statistic, that he's not going to die in vain. So she finds a lawyer to file a wrongful death suit against the pharmacist who prescribed the OxyContin to her brother and also the doctor who wrote his last prescription. So she went through that. They, they had a settlement. She got about $40,000. And then she said, well, it's going on with her brother. She's talking to all the people in her community and was going on everywhere. And where she lives is a, called Mingo County, West Virginia. So just think about like Hatfield, McCoy, Fuse. That's where all this is what's taking place. And she winds up rounding up about 30 different people who either had overdosed and survived or had addiction problems or families who lost loved ones. And there's a lot of families. She keeps a, a long list of names of people who have died of overdoses that she knows personally. So they went up suing a bunch of different doctors. They went up suing a bunch of different pharmacists, sort of the, the bad actors that were running what they called pain pill clinics or pain pill pharmacies, just these pharmacies that are churning out hundreds of prescriptions, dispensing hundreds of prescriptions a day, and doctors writing hundreds of prescriptions. Some, some said one every minute at one particular clinic. So she does that. That case is actually still going on now. And this is 
was 15 years later. But as part of that, she then got with her lawyer. His name was Jim Cagle. They discussed, you know, where to go next. And she said, well, I want to know where all these pills are coming from. Who's bringing them to our towns? And you know, she thought, as I would have thought, it, maybe it was like FedEx or UPS or the U.S. Postal Service. So she got in her car. She went to a pharmacy across the a river in, into Kentucky, and she wound up tailing one of these delivery drivers that was bringing drugs into the community. And she followed the driver throughout the county, and she wound up having the lone police officer in the town where she lives asked him to run the plate, and it was registered at a company she never heard of, which is called Cardinal Health. And it turns out Cardinal Health is one of the biggest drug distributors in the country. My part, I didn't really get into get into it until about 2013 when there was lawsuits that were filed, shortly after lawsuits were filed against the drug distributors. And it also kind of sums up, I kind of wrote this as a siren call for local watchdog journalism, sort of to show there is power in the press, even in tiny newsrooms like ours in Southern West Virginia. And I also wanted to um, urge people, or a, a theme that goes through the book is this idea of sustained outrage. And that means it was a term coined by uh, the late publisher of the Charleston Gazette. And it basically, it means that you hammer away at injustices until they're writing. And it's one thing, obviously, fighting the opioid epidemic, but the same thing can be applied to what's going on today with uh, the White House and protests, et cetera. And so basically, I, I wrote the book to try to keep the spirit of sustained outrage alive. Well, the sustained outrage, I did see that throughout the book as I was listening to it. I did the book as an audio book on a road trip. But I, I agree with you. I feel like it very much resonates with the idea of the Trump administration and just some of the things going on. And it's hard sometimes to sustain the outrage. You get upset at first, and then you just sort of get worn down by it all. And so that is important to stay upset and to pursue it through the end. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really about resilience, overcoming the odds, and holding the powerful accountable. You know, we, we basically, all of us, we took on, I mean, these are all in the top 20 in the Fortune 500, just enormous companies. And we also, a lot of my coverage was about failures of the federal regulators, like the Drug Enforcement Administration that only had two agents in the entire state of West Virginia during the height of the opioid crisis that were working on stopping diversion of drugs from getting onto the black market. Best case scenario, their heads in the sand. And the worst case scenario, they were complicit with the companies that were making billions and billions of dollars off the sales of these pills. Well, that was the frustrating thing to me was you were looking at it and there are so many people that are doing wrong from those doctors that are prescribing way too many pills, from these pharmacies that must know they're doing wrong when they're constantly dispensing pills to the distributors, to the drug manufacturers themselves, mm. the government, the guy that I think he was the attorney general in West Virginia. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. They all were complicit and behaving horribly. It was, it was depressing, that side of human nature. Yeah. There's a scene in the book where one of the state police gives a deposition and he, he's asked about talking just just like you said you you have the all these different layers of people that are involved all these different layers of people doing something wrong and misconduct and he said it's really not much different from a cartel this is just a legal cartel you know they said that the way this thing was set up that it was almost like this whole system was set up by uh, Pablo Escobar or who's the other guy El Chapo it's just all the gears had to work in place and now, now that things are, you know, there's been a light shine on this, everybody's pointing the finger at, at somebody else and nobody wants to take the blame. 
Well, there are so many bad actors, so it's unfortunate, but that would be, I think, an easy way to try to remove the blame from yourself because there's so many other layers in it. And even like the sales reps where I guess they were being incentivized to sell more and more pills, it was just not a great system for the people that were ending up impacted by it. You mentioned the sales force. I mean, they were they were just everywhere. And you, you even had some, some doctors were strictly out for profit to make money, but you had some legitimate doctors who were being told that Oxycontin was, was not addictive and that if, if they didn't prescribe it, they'd face malpractice suits. So there's a lot of good doctors that got swept on this, but then of course there was a lot of bad doctors that worked at these pill mill clinics where people lined up around the block and came in as long as they had cash, they could get a prescription for anything they wanted. That's right. I had forgotten about that part of the the doctors who were actually trying to be helpful and were being told that it was not something that people could be addicted to. I Just all the way around, there were a lot of bad actors. And one thing that really struck me was you managed to take so much detail and so many numbers and facts and distill it down to a very readable narrative. And I just thought that that was great. It must have taken a lot of time and effort to get it into a, that type of format. What do you hope your readers take away from this book? Well, I guess, I guess it would be that in, in some cases, the underdogs can win. That Well, so I guess, you know, so, sometimes the persistence pays off. And I say sometimes because sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes you can make, make a difference. And all it really takes is a little sustained outrage. Tell me about winning the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. Yeah, that was a totally surreal experience, Cindy. I, I had no clue that we were going to win. I, I didn't think we had a shot. Of course, I knew that they, they had entered, but I only had three stories that we entered, and they weren't very long stories. And most of the stories that win the Pulitzer Prizes are like 10 or 20 stories. And of course, most of the time it goes to the New York Times or the Washington Post. So I wasn't even in the building when it was announced, and they called me into the building we didn't have the champagne ready like the others, the other. And that, that, was a, that was a funny thing. I didn't realize. I thought, oh, you get noticed if you win a Pulitzer beforehand that they let you know so you can get all prepared. Because you see these shots of people hovered around the computers at the New York Times with glasses of champagne at the ready. Well, it turns out that they're going to win one one way or the other every year. <laughs> so they're just ready every year with their champagne. And, yeah, and this is the first in the history of the Charleston Gazette. So, Well, that had to be so exciting. Is there a ceremony? I'm not familiar with actually the awarding of it. Is there a ceremony for it or they announce it and publish it? How does that all yeah, work? Yeah, it's, it's really low-key. Um, they have a ceremony at Columbia. You don't, you don't have to give speeches. They don't let you give speeches. It's just a luncheon and you go up and you get your certificate of award. Yeah, it's, it's about an hour and then you go outside and take a picture and then you leave. But there's no pomp and circumstance. There's no bands. There's no <laughs> speeches, which is fine by me because I'm not much of a speech, speech maker. Well, and the speeches can really make those things a lot longer. So it's probably yeah. <laughs> better that there aren't speeches. You know, four hours later, you'd still be going, I'd like to get my award. I, uh, I went to one a couple of days before it had won another award. And, and you're exactly right. Some people tend to really go on and on and on, especially because they don't have, you know, you need like the music to tell you when your time's up like they do at the Oscars. That's actually exactly what I was just going to say. They don't have the music to race them off the stage. So maybe they need to implement that. Well, congratulations, by the way. I don't think I said that because that, that's oh, really you. quite an honor. Well, thanks. It, it, again, it's, it was surreal and I don't even think it has sunk in. 
Are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? Actually, I, I've been working on an essay, something new I found out a couple weeks ago. There was a document that had been under seal in the national opioid litigation case that's based out of Cleveland, where they've consolidated 3,000 cases. And those 3,000 cases all were spawned by this, this one case in, well, the, the lawsuits against the distributors and then Kermit, West Virginia, which we haven't talked about. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. But so it's, there was this email that was circulated by this company called Amerisource Bergen, which is the second largest drug distributor in the country. And it was a song that made fun of quote unquote pillbillies who were addicted to Oxycontin. And it was sung to the tune of the Beverly Hillbillies. When, when this email was circulated by these, these company executives, we were having 600, 700 people dying a year of opioid overdoses. So they were sort of laughing at us behind our back at our expense. It, it boggles the mind what people will do. And you don't know if, if it's just that they've removed themselves from it or they're not thinking about those people as people, but it, it's very hard to understand how that could happen. Yeah, they're sitting, they're sitting in their offices in Philadelphia, and I'm actually a native of the Philadelphia region. And I mean, it really boils down to they were, they were mocking us, they're having a laugh at our expense, and people were, were dying. And they were making billions of dollars. They were shipping billions of billions and billions of pills, not just to West Virginia, but to, to small towns across America, to, to counties. Um, you know, when we, when we put two and two together, I mean, we, we did maps of where the most pills were shipped and we did maps of where, the lar- where they had the largest number, the highest percentage of overdoses on a per capita basis. And those, those counties lined up almost exactly the same. At one point, we had, I think, of the top 15 counties with overdose deaths in the country, 10 of them were in West Virginia, the others being Eastern Kentucky, Eastern Tennessee, and there was one county in Utah was actually a mining county. There seemed to be a, a link with the, the mining industry. Well, it's a very hard job, and I would guess injuries are probably very prevalent. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember there were, there were a lot of numbers to keep up with because there are so many pills going so many places. But one of the ones that stuck with me was that 9 million pain pills in two years were sent to a town of 382 people and to that Save Right Pharmacy in Kermit. And you just think, how did that happen? Yeah, and that's where... Debbie Priest has a house. It's just a little small town. You're, you're through it in about five or 10 minutes. And the pharmacy is just like a little shoebox. It's a cinder block building, no bigger than a quarter the size of a fast food restaurant. But, you know, here you have, and we saw on the surveillance, I uh, saw on the surveillance tapes that our lawyer gave me. I mean, you had literally cars, you know, backed up down the highway. You had people trading pills in the parking lot. You had distributors coming in and then unloading dollies and dollies of drugs. I mean, it got so bad at one point that the owner, you know, people were starting to complain about the weights because they were coming from, not only coming from <laughs> Kentucky and they were coming from Ohio and Pennsylvania and even as far away as North Carolina and Florida. And they were getting sick of these, the wait times so that the owner of the pharmacy put a a camper trailer type thing out in the parking lot. And then he just started selling hot dogs and hamburgers. And then inside they, they gave away free hot buttered popcorn. And the subpoenas were startling when, when we looked at the, when they, before they raided the pharmacy, they did eventually raid the pharmacy, shut it down and then it reopened and they resumed shipments. And then they were shut down again when the guy went to prison. Just, they just described this, this idea of bags and, 
bags being hurled over the counter, you know, prescriptions, you know, literally throwing them. And the cash register was so full of money, they could never even get it closed. So it was just a, just out of control and nobody was doing anything to stop it. You know, that's when truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. If you tried to write a fictional story and described all that, people would be like, that is so unrealistic. But in fact, it was actually happening. Yeah, it, it is the stuff of fiction, but it was real life here. And, you know, we, we really suffered the consequences. While well, this guy, with this pharmacist making like $6.5 million a year, people were literally taking too much of the medication, getting hooked, and then ultimately uh, dying. Well, I'm very glad that you brought the story to the public because I do think it's a very relevant story and, and the crisis is all over the country. And so it's it's nice to have the light shined on it, hard as it was at times to read. I mean, I would tear up at times because I just thought these poor people and it's just crazy. And at other times I was exclaiming, how can this be? So, I mean, it was definitely very great read, but a hard read. And I just very much appreciate that all of your time and effort to get the book out there. Well, thanks. I not easy talking about death and everything, but there is you know, this is sort of a shining light on it. The idea that I don't know if you call it a win, but we got we we, ex- we exposed what they were doing. We unveiled the legal cartel, so to speak, and I think it kind of changed the trajectory of what was before. Everybody wanted to blame only the addict; it's their own fault. This is what they do. They're poor people. Who cares? And now there's there's sort of the, the the start or the the seeds of the epidemic were actually sown by you know big pharma and these distributors and of course the doctors and the and the pharmacists and i think that's kind of changed the whole specter of of the opioid epidemic well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear about some of your recent recommendations for books that you've liked that you've read recently and really enjoyed. Well, my favorite author is T.C. Boyle, and he wrote a book about a year ago called The Relive Box, a short story collection. I, I love fiction short stories. I'll read his novels, too, and other novels, but uh, he seems to be the master of the short story. He mixes humor and into, his, into his writing. I love the pace, and the, I think he, he wrote once that you've got to grab the reader by the throat in the beginning and, and hold it there till the end. And uh, he does that. His writing really sparkles in, in my mind. The other thing I have is kind of a weird fascination with sports columnists from newspapers. It's, it must be some kind of newspaper thing. Because when I was in eighth grade, I had to write a paper um, about what you want to be when you're you know, grown up. And, and I wanted to I put a sports reporter. But there's this collection of sports columns called Best Sports Stories. And i Kind of, I read it in college and had them in high school, and I'm still collecting them. And currently, have all volumes of this collection from 1967 to 1991. It actually goes back to the 40s, so I need to up my game and get some earlier. But <laughs> it's fun to sit down and read sports columns, columnists. You just see them like hovering over the portable typewriter, and some probably hunting and pecking and slamming the. <laughs> the carriage. <laughs> I can't even remember really what it's called. I actually have one around here somewhere. I still have a portable typewriter that I used once. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed talking about Death in Mudlick. It was one of the best reads I've read so far this year, and I just really appreciate your time. Well, thanks, Cindy, for taking an interest in the book, and uh, really wish you well with everything that you're doing. And 
Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast and tell all your friends about the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I would really appreciate it. Death and Mudlick can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.